Well, two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, Mike took us through Jeremiah um, 15. And Jeremiah, poor old Jeremiah, is often described as the weeping prophet. I found the same picture. (laughs) Um, We found Jeremiah at a very low ebb, um, even questioning his birth. Um, I think... As we were thinking about that, I think it's important to understand how difficult life was in ancient Israel at the time of Jeremiah. Idolatry over centuries had brought the nation to the point where God was going to judge them at the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It was a time of enormous uncertainty and constant conflict. Jeremiah would live through the destruction of Jerusalem and be forcibly exiled to Egypt, where he probably died, never knowing whether or not his prophecies of restoration for Israel would be fulfilled. And Mike showed us that Jeremiah was metaphorically in a pit of despair. And we marvelled at the way that God, our loving God, had dealt with him through that very difficult time. Well, I was reflecting on what Mike said, so my mind went to Psalm 130, um, which we're going to think about this evening, out of the depths. So, Ross, would you like to read Psalm 130 for us, please? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of wrongs, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel. Thank you. So as you'll probably be aware, Psalms 120 to 134 are entitled A Song of Ascents. And this is obviously one of them. Um, Songs, poems that were used by the Israelites on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate their three main festivals each year. And you can find hints of where these were used through the Old Testament. Jerusalem was always up, uh, no matter the geography of the starting point. Like, I always went down to London. They would go up to Jerusalem. Um, Psalm 130 also has an ascent, as it were, in its thinking, as we shall see. It's also um, one one of um, seven penitential psalms. I have a list of them if you want to know, probably not going to register if I go through it, but it's a penitential psalm in common with six others. And as Ross read that, I don't know if you noticed that it nicely falls into four sections of two verses each. Very easy to to see. It's very poetic, well constructed, and we'll go through those sections one by one. So going... um, to firstly to verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths. The depths 
is definitely where Jeremiah was. And he's not alone in scripture for coming across as very low at some points. Elijah was definitely in the depths when he complained that he was the only one left um, worshipping God and that he actually wanted to die. Incidentally, um, for an insight into how God lovingly deals with someone in the depths, do ponder at some point 1 Kings 19. Because the love and care that God shows to Elijah is astonishing, worth pondering. The person obviously most literally in the depths was Jonah, when in the belly of the fish. Now in my course of my career as a GP in St Albans, I had dealings with many people, um, including a number of Christians who suffered with very low mood and depression. But in the 18th century in St Albans, there was a famous uh, doctor, a certain Dr Nathaniel Cotton, who was a Christian and who, whose care for mentally ill people was exemplary at the time, especially when compared to the horror of Bedlam that was going on, the, the asylum in London where people with mental illnesses were just humiliated. Dr. Cotton got a reputation for being extremely caring. He ran an institution in St. Albans called the Collegium Insonorium. And in 1763, he received into his care the 32-year-old William Cooper in a state of deep and possibly psychotic depression, well down in the depths. Now, while in Cotton's care... Cooper made at least one serious attempt to take his own life. He gradually improved, however, and he used to attend Spicer Street Church in St Albans, which is where Chris and I were members for some 20 years um, before we went to Ethiopia. Um, There was a number of quite well-known people who attended Spicer Street, but William Cooper was there for about 18 months. His low mood being down in the depths, is often reflected in his writings, even after his conversion. In his hymn, Oh for a Closer Walk with God, which was one of the earliest ones he wrote, he says this, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed, how sweet their memory still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. A real poem from the heart, from a very low mood of a guy who spent a lot of time in the depths. There are many reasons why we can feel we're in the depths, in the state of hopelessness and misery but where everything looks bleak and any attempt to clamber up the sides of a deep muddy pit to pull yourself together always ends in failure you can't do it without help i suspect we've all been there to some extent at some point haven't we but here the psalmist in psalm 130 is particularly referring to the depths of sin and guilt he's desperate For mercy, he knows he needs it. And I think that puts us all into this psalm, doesn't it? 
all in the same boat, as it were. Which, which one of us doesn't need mercy from the Lord? Now, he makes three assumptions in these first two verses here in his desperation for mercy. Firstly, he assumes that God is there. Secondly, that he can be cried out to. And thirdly, that sin is deadly serious. He's justified in making these assumptions because he knows something about God. I don't know if you noticed, but the word Lord comes up twice in each of the four pairs of verses in this song. So verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Verse three, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Verse five, I wait for the Lord. Verse six, I wait for the Lord. Verse seven, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord, and so on. But note the use of capitals, if that's in your Bible, because he initially cries out in each of those sections using the name Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord, in capitals. It's the, he is the, uh, identifies God there as the I am, the covenant making and keeping God of his people Israel. Lord, capital letters. Then he addresses God with the second use of the word Lord as Adonai, meaning Lord and Master, the sovereign, the one he can personally rely on. In those two words, we have a lot of understanding of what the psalmist knows about God. And he knows he can call on the uh, covenant God of his nation and he can call on the Lord for himself personally. He cries out for mercy because he knows his God. So let's move on to verses three to four. Knowing his God and understanding the seriousness of sin, the psalmist now asks two rhetorical questions in verses three to four. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? As I said, rhetorical, because knowing the awesome holiness and majesty of God, who he again addresses as Jehovah and then Adonai, and knowing the horrendous seriousness of sinning against such a God, the answer is a given, isn't it? No one, none of us can stand. Think for a minute how it would feel if standing before God on the threshold of eternity, every sin Every thought, every deed, every word from your entire life was read out for all to hear. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Well, in the context of this psalm, it is slightly ironic that God does keep a record. Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Who could stand? It's a judicial thing. Could you stand in this court where your sin was being made public? The answer is clear, doesn't, isn't it? And it brooks no discussion. None of us. I'm sure none of you are right now feeling confident I could do that. 
The psalmist knows about God. He's shown us that and he holds him in awe. He understands the horror and the profundity of sin, but he knows something else. There is forgiveness. As Matt highlighted for us this morning, God says to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Did the psalmist know this passage? He may well have done. In his world, the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, the scapegoat, the promise of a Messiah to come, the ancient church knew of repentance and forgiveness. And how blessed are we that we're able to see so much more clearly than they, that it all, that it all pointed to Christ and the cross. As we shall remember in a few moments, there is forgiveness and he knew this. Now, C.H. Spurgeon preached on this verse and I can't put it any better so I'm going to quote him. He said this, when Luther was in great trouble of soul he was comforted by one who said to him, dost thou not believe thy creed? Yes, replied Luther, I believe the creed. Well then, rejoined the other, one article in it is I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Luther's heart was lightened at once by the remembrance of the words in this psalm, there is forgiveness. It may be that you have sinned many times and grievously, but there is forgiveness. Though a child of God, you have gone far astray from him, but there is forgiveness. You have backslidden sadly and horribly, but there is forgiveness. The devil comes and howls at you and tells you that your doom is sealed and your damnation is sure, but there is forgiveness. Oh, blessed sentence. Well, the psalmist's conclusion to the availability of mercy and forgiveness for our sin is perhaps a little surprising in verse 4. You might expect him to conclude that forgiveness results in gratitude or love or peace, having been rescued from the depths from which he cried out to the Lord. But look at verse four again. But with you there is forgiveness that so we can, with reverence, serve you. The NIV has stepped a little bit out of translation into interpretation here. Go to this verse in almost any other version and you will find something similar to what the ESV says which says this, but you, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The NIV has interpreted the word feared for us to reverent service. That helps, I think, but I wonder if in doing that we've lost a little bit of what it means to fear the Lord. A believer, a person of faith in God, such as the psalmist is, has no need to be terrified of God. That's true. The, the unbeliever does, and rightly so. As a hymn we sometimes sing says, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. No, there's no terror of God for the believer. 
but we don't need to be frightened. But if we can grasp the magnitude of God's awesomeness, the dazzling intensity of his holiness, the astonishing love that he has shown us, and how utterly incomprehensibly great he is, shouldn't our reverence be tinged with a modicum of nervousness of, yes, perhaps fear? John Bunyan wrote an entire treatise on the fear of God, which, bizarrely, I'm reading at the moment. Um, He identifies what he calls an ungodly fear of God. For example, the fear Adam knew after his disobedience when he told God he was afraid of him and so he tried to hide from God behind a tree. But Bunyan also identifies a true fear of God for the believer. And he highlights this from Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Forgive me, that's from the authorised version. It sounds better. Reverence and godly fear. And check out what Moses um, says in Deuteronomy 10. He abuts godly fear with some other things. He says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Fear, obedience, love, service, all together. So when we've grasped the enormity, the amazement of God's forgiveness, that should be our grateful response, shouldn't it? Isn't that how we should react? And it's also quite appropriate for us to fear displeasing such a generous, loving and forgiving Heavenly Father. So let's move on to verses 5 and 6. Having cried out to God and spoken to him about forgiveness, in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist now speaks to himself. And at the end of the final, final two verses, in 7 and 8, he'll speak to the people of God as a whole. But he says here in 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So here he tells himself to wait for the Lord. He's cried out to God, he knows forgiveness is his, and now he's expectantly waiting for God's response. God's deliverance, which isn't always instant, as I'm sure uh, this is something that we've all experienced. Prayers not answered immediately. Abraham and Sarah waited years for Isaac after God promised. Zachariah and Elizabeth waited years for John the Baptist. Patient waiting for God's response is a fruit of the Spirit. Confidence that God will respond, though, is based on his word. Did you notice that? In his word, 
I put my hope. Waiting for God is based on hope, based on his word. God has always been true to his word and always will be. He's revealed enough of himself so that we can know that. Confidence doesn't rest in our experience or in our feelings or in our circumstances. It rests on God's word objectively. That's where our confidence sits. The night watchman, um, excuse me, perhaps um, the night watchman waiting for the dawn is a vivid analogy of this for us. The watchman could have been military, could have been civil. Um, but it doesn't really matter. The point here is that he makes two, um, twice in poetic rep- repetition, he, he talks about the watchman waiting for the morning. The emphasis is on absolute and unassailable confidence. The night watchman waiting for the dawn knows with 100% certainty and confidence that the dawn will definitely come. Absolutely, no doubt. At no point in history has the sun not risen in the morning. A long, cold and difficult night it might be, but it will surely end. You may be waiting for um, all sorts of things that you've asked God for. Um, Premises, work, income, friendship, a partner, whatever. Be patient. Be confident, trust God's word, but we're all waiting for something bigger, grander and more final, aren't we? We're in a dark and difficult world, but there's a dawn coming like no other. A day will dawn when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, Malachi 4. God will be vindicated in the eyes of all humanity. Jesus will be seen in his risen glory and every knee will bow. It's coming. It really is. More certain than the night watchman waiting for the morning. But while you wait, be patient, but don't be quiet. Why not bend God's ear a bit, as it were? Isaiah 62 I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. While you're waiting, pray. Don't give up. Of course, Jesus taught about that with his importunate prayer parables. Keep on don't be silent so we wait we cry we fear we wait and finally we have hope in verses seven to eight israel put your hope in the lord for with the lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption he himself will redeem israel from all their sins This is a true song of ascents, isn't it? He's come up a long way, hasn't he? Having started in the depths of despair, crying out to God for mercy, having been reassured with forgiveness and having found confidence in God's word 
and a patient wait for deliverance, the psalmist now ascends to the people of God and shares his encouragement. It's a long way up, isn't it, from those depths where he started. Well, he's already said, and you probably noticed in verse 5, that his hope is in, the, in God's word. And now he wants that hope to flourish among the wider ancient church. They too can hope in God. And he now, in these last two verses, he gives them three reasons to be filled with hope. Firstly, because of the Lord's unfailing love. He knows this, God's covenant, mercy-drenched love for his people will never, can never fail. Remember, we looked at Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, abounding in love. That love, of course, was sealed in the person and work of Christ. As John says in 1 John, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hope in God because of his unfailing love. Secondly, that firstly, uh, God's un- the Lord's unfailing love. Secondly, full redemption. You see that? Hope in God because of his unfailing love and also because of his full redemption. There is nothing incomplete about the way God has brought you back from your hell-bound destiny. Nothing is beyond his reach. Your redemption is full and complete. If ever there was a reason to be confident in hope, it's this, that you are now completely safe. You've been bought with a price, and what a price. You are God's treasured possession. He will never, ever let you go. Full redemption. So be filled with hope because of God's unfailing love. Be filled with hope because of your full redemption. And be filled with hope because all your sin has been dealt with. He's forgiven all your sins. I hope this has hit you this evening as we focused on God's forgiveness. You are forgiven. You are here, now, complete and forever. You can never out-sin God's grace. He forgives all your sin. Do you notice the all? All of it. There's no more sin than all sin. All of it, past, present, future, taken and paid for by the one who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible uses a number of metaphors. God has hurled your iniquities into the depths of the sea, Micah 7. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgression from you, Psalm 103. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31. How many metaphors do you need? They are all gone. As the hymn writer says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. 
O my soul. Out of the depths. So is there hope for one in the depths? Yes, there is. Is there hope for the helpless? Yes. Is there hope for the one struggling with sin? Absolutely yes. The Christian message is a unique message of hope. William Cooper struggled with depression on and off most of his life. But while he was under the care of Dr. Cotton in St. Albans, something remarkable happened. So as we come to share the Lord's Supper together, let's just listen to what happened in Cooper's own words. He picked up a Bible in a room in Dr. Cotton's um, hospital, it was. And he says this, The first verse I saw was the 25th of the third chapter to the Romans, where Jesus is set forth as the propitiation for our sins. Immediately, I received strength to believe it. Immediately, the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed by his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of my justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Thus was my heavenly Father in Christ Jesus pleased to give me the full assurance of faith at once and out of a stony and unbelieving heart to raise up a child unto Abraham. Psalm 130 leads us directly to the cross, doesn't it? The forgiveness promised, the hope engendered, the confidence given, and all because of Christ's unfailing love and the full redemption that he purchased with his own blood. So let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together.